Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, Trinity Baptist Church. The Lord is with you. Have you ever had your identity stolen? I have. Uh, you get this call from the fraud department at your credit card or your bank, and they say that somebody's used your number and name to purchase tickets for Honolulu or something, and suddenly you're greatly inconvenienced. Turns out identity theft's a big deal in our world. There are folk who are real, willing to do all kinds of crafty things to try to get hold of your numbers, my numbers, our names, and use them and pretend to be us and cause our lives all kinds of difficulties. They're willing to go through our trash and steal our mail, send us all kinds of crazy phishing text messages and emails for us to click on. So eventually we find ourselves on the short end of that stick. The Federal Trade Commission says 10 million of us a year are uh, victims of identity theft. And it's a pretty serious thing. Uh, you can end up spending lots of money trying to get your credit score fixed back or your bank uh, settled with your account and all kinds of other things. For some, it's just an inconvenience of having to cancel a card and get a new one and tell everybody you shop with what the new number is. But at any rate, it's an inconvenience. We hate to have our good name, our good credit trashed and have our identity stolen. It's a lot to lose. I'm willing to argue that the church has experienced the threat of this serious crime. The Church of Jesus Christ has faced having its identity stolen in our culture. The church has become the victim of identity theft. It's not that a group of evil hackers have tried to get into the church accounts and do things with them, though that probably happens, but I mean it is the very culture to which we have been called to bear witness that has stolen our identity from us. Our identity of church has been stolen through our carelessness as much as anything, just like having poor passwords or not checking your credit accounts is a good way to let your physical credit be stolen. The church's identity has been stolen. The world has always resisted the church in one way or another. In many parts of the world and through many hundreds of years, the church has been resisted by the world through physical violence and persecution. But in the midst of that persecution, the church has nevertheless been able to maintain its identity. We are the people of God. We are the church. And the world has approached us. But in Western culture, it's not physical violence that threatens us. The world has not sought to eliminate us, but to assimilate us. They chew us up and swallow us and digest us and incorporate the church into itself, and we lose our identity. We are no longer who we were called to be if we are not careful. It's been stolen. For example, there are organizations, lots of them in our culture, that use the word church. Some of them use the word Baptist church. But in reality, what goes on in that organization resembles little the spirit-filled, mission-directed, Pentecost-called church that was founded in the New Testament. Instead, the church has taken more and more on the consumerism of our age, trying to give people what they want, what they want to hear, rather than calling them to a life and to a mission. And that's nothing short 
of having our identity stolen when we cease to be the church. Even the word church in our ordinary conversation has ceased to mean what it means in this book. We use the word church sometime to just speak of an organization. I joined the Baptist church like I joined the YMCA or I joined the gym. It's just a place to join in the community. Or we use it to mean a building. I left my Bible at the church. Or we use it to mean a worship service. I didn't see you at church Sunday. I missed you. Our church just becomes a group of people like the staff and the lay leaders who are making decisions. I wonder what they're doing down at the church. You ever heard of that? Or worse, we even give up the word church itself and let the culture give us a new name. One of the most recent words that we've exchanged for church is evangelicals. Now that once used to be a perfectly good theological term that set apart a part of Christendom as a people with some theological commitments, especially to the authority of scripture. But that word itself has been hijacked now, co-opted to mean a political voting block. No longer does it mean in our culture what it's supposed to mean. We have been largely assimilated. That's I. Identity theft at its clearest. None of these uses of these words has anything to do with the way the word is used in the New Testament. Our identity has been stolen, our name has been trashed, and it's costly to us and our mission. It's also confusing to the world about us. Uh, when the word church is misused, People wonder, why should I join a church? Why should I be part of a church? What's church membership? Why is that important? Not just at Trinity Baptist, but anywhere. Why be a part of a church? Just the fact that the question is raised tells us that there are cultural definitions at work, not biblical definitions at work. Who wants to be part of a religious institution? I don't. I remember in Baptist Training Union as a kid growing up, we learned things about the church. And one of the definitions we learned was a real standard Baptist definition of church. Some of you may have learned this, that the church is an organized body of baptized believers. Man, I want to give my life for that, don't you? Nothing I'd like better than to give my life to an organized body. The New Testament, the book of Acts, defines church very, very differently. It is a, an intentional, spirit-filled community of followers of Jesus Christ who are pursuing the mission of God together. I, I'll give my life for that. I want to be a part of that. But it's been so watered down that our identity has been stolen. Any sense of the church as the body of Christ, the messianic people of God, banded together to carry out the mission of Christ in the world and to live Christ's life together, that meaning has been largely extracted. If I'm a follower of Jesus and I understand church missionally, why would I not seek out others who share those same commitments and want to live my life with them and be accountable to them and care for them and be cared for by them and commit myself to this life together, finding ways of pursuing this God-given mission together? You become a Christian by committing your life to Christ. You become part of the church by committing your life to other Christians. It is not an individual thing. It is something we do together. We are the body of Christ, the body of the Messiah. If we intend to live as church, the people of God, then we need to understand our identity. It needs to be crystal clear to us who we are, and we must never, ever let it be stolen. 
We do that by returning to the Word of God. Scripture is like a mirror for us to look into and to see ourselves, our lives, our mission reflected in the stories and the Gospels and in the book of Acts and the letters of Paul and John and others. We are part of that same ancient story. It's just been extended now 2,000 years into this present, but it is our story, not just an ancient one. We are the church that's described in the book of Acts. We are the church that's described in the Gospels. We are the church to whom Paul addressed his letters. The issue of identity It's important to us. We need to know who we are. Turns out that's a wilderness question for the people of God. When ancient Israel formed its understanding of who it was, it did so in the wilderness. For 400 years, their identity had been formed clearly. They were slaves of Pharaoh. That's who they were. Their whole life was governed by what Pharaoh wanted, what Pharaoh demanded, what Pharaoh asked for. Every moment of their day was under that domain. And then Moses was raised up and sent to the people and the power of God delivered them from bondage, from slavery in Egypt and brought them out with a mighty hand, God says, and an outstretched arm and the the waters of the sea parted and they walked through on dry land and their enemies were destroyed and they were set free. They were no longer Pharaoh's slaves, but who were they? The wilderness is one of those places where we've often lost one thing. It's maybe something to which we really attached our identity. It may have been a marriage. It may have been a child. It may have been a job. It may have been a position. But we've left that one way or another, and we are in this in-between time. And the question is, who are we now? It's an identity question. And so God brought Israel to Mount Sinai, and there he began to forge their identity in a fresh way at the foot of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb or modern-day Jabal Musa in the Sinai wilderness, God gave them a word about their identity. This is found in Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Take a look at their journey so far. They have come out of Egypt and along the coast, and finally they come down to Rephidim and camp there in front of Mount Sinai. They've come this far, and now their identity is about to be addressed. So in the next verse, Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will hear my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses summoned the elders of the people and set them before them all these words the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The redemption of these people, their deliverance, changed their identity from slaves of Pharaoh to the beloved people of God, a chosen nation, though God owned 
all the nations. All the peoples of the earth belong to God, but he has chosen one people to be the ones through whom he reveals himself, a people who reflect his ways, a people who reflect his character, a people who reflect and bear witness to his love. And look at the terms he offers them. You can be to me a treasured possession out of all the peoples. Uh, if you are the, the ruler, the king, the, the monarch, technically you own everything. Everything is yours. If you own everything, then it may have a sense in which nothing is really specially yours. And so there are accounts of kings and queens who had a special treasure box where they kept maybe gifts that had been given to them by foreign visitors and dignitaries or uh, people close to them. These were their treasured possessions, their special possessions. They owned everything, but these were the special things. And God says to Israel here, all the nations of the earth are mine. But you're going to be my treasured possession, my special possession, if you will listen to my voice and keep my covenant. He says, you're going to be a priestly kingdom. All the nations of the earth are my concern. God so loved the world. But I need a kingdom of priests who will be that mediating nation, the witness-bearing nation who goes between me and the others and lets them know who I am and lets them know what the good news is. You will be a holy nation, a nation set apart for God's use only. From that holy nation would come the holy one, the chosen one, Jesus, the Messiah, who would be savior of the world. This is who they would be when they left Sinai. This is who they would be when they entered into Canaan, the land of milk and honey. This is who they would be through the period of the judges and the kings. This is who they'd be through the centuries, the people of God, the chosen nation, through whom God would reveal himself to the world, the chosen one through whom he would send Jesus the Messiah. They were chosen for the sake of all the nations of the earth. And so God did what he intended to do. In the fullness of time, Paul says, God sent his son into the world and he brought him into the world through that nation that he had covenanted with at Mount Sinai. He came as an Israelite. He called 12 disciples. He trained them and then he empowered them and sent them out to bear witness to the entire world. And they went out and began to bear witness this good news, not to Jews only, but also, thank goodness for us, to Gentiles as well. All the nations were to hear the good news of what God had done in his son, Jesus Christ. One of those 12 disciples, Simon Peter, wrote a letter to Gentile Christians in Asia Minor, persecuted Christians in Asia Minor. We call it First Peter. And amazingly, it was Peter who himself had a little bit of a problem. If you read Acts chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, Peter had a little bit of a problem accepting Gentiles into the church. But here he is writing to Gentile churches, his churches. And of all things, he borrows the words spoken specifically to Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 and hands them to the church, the Gentile churches. Their identity is the people of God. Here's Peter's words. But you, church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That is our identity as the church. Chosen people, not chosen because we were better than others, chosen for the sake 
of others. A royal priesthood, all of us priests before God with a responsibility to pray for one another, to intercede before God, to lift one another up, and to care for the world that God's given us. A holy nation set apart for God's use only. God's own possession, called to a relationship with him in a unique way, called out of darkness like Egypt into light like Canaan called to bear witness and declare the praises of him who called us out, called the people of God, called the recipients of divine abundant mercy. That's who we are. That's our identity. And that is what is often threatened. It's the identity we must protect at all costs, never allowing it to be stolen, co-opted, or assimilated by a culture that ignores Jesus Christ. It's necessary, I'm told, that we handle our credit cards and our credit scores and our passwords and our social security numbers and our bank statements with a great deal of care to keep our identity intact. But we have to, there's some things we must do to keep our identity as church intact. And the way we do that is by guarding our mission, guarding our mission. That's how we protect our identity. It's the place where our identity is most frequently lost. When the church veers from its God-given mission, it becomes something other than the church. It can happen to an individual congregation. It can happen to a church and a culture. But when we veer from the mission that is given us, that is part of our identity, we threaten uh, the loss of our identity. Our identity is not wrapped up in being saved. Our identity is wrapped up in being sent. God has brought us on eagle's wings out of Egypt, as he told Israel. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. We are no longer slaves to sin. But that doesn't constitute our identity. What constitutes our identity is that we, having been saved, have now been sent to this world that God loves. That is the mission. The mission is what defines us. One theologian said that, as fire exists by burning, so the church exists by mission. When the fire stops burning, you've just got ashes and dying embers. And when the church ceases to carry out its mission given by God, it is no longer something to be called church. Its light and heat diminish. Its worship becomes empty emotionalism or cold formalism. Its fellowship becomes superficial. Its teaching becomes dull doctrine. It loses its edge, its flame, its passion, its heart. And it loses the ability to address a lost and hurting world with the good news of God's gospel. We must hold on to our mission. That's where identity is found. All the more reason to stay clear about that. What is the mission of God in the world? What's the, what is a one-sentence description of the story of this book? Well, here's a shot at it. The mission of God in the world, seems to me from this book, is that he is working to gather together a people for himself, relationship with himself, that are made up of people, men and women from every tongue and language and tribe and people and nation, who love him wholeheartedly and who love each other unselfishly. That's the story. He starts out, that way gathering Israel. He sends his son Jesus who gathers disciples, who gather the nations, who form the church. And when the book of Revelation is written, there before the throne of God is a, an 
in an innumerable multitude of people who love God wholeheartedly, who love each other unselfishly, and who come from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's God's mission in the world, gathering people to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and the church is his instrument to accomplish that. That's the purpose of sending Christ in the world, and that's the purpose the Holy Spirit fell upon those disciples to form the church at Pentecost. The mission of God in the world is what we are called to be and do, and that's what we must guard or we will substitute something far less. Now, as I said, the FTC says you and I should be looking over our statements and credit cards and credit reports, make sure nothing unusual is going on, because the sooner we detect a problem, the quicker we can keep the damage from being uh, too devastating. And in the same way, we need to keep track, pay attention to our church, to our life together, to be sure that we stay focused on the mission so that if we find ourselves veering from it, we can call ourselves back to it. We check our budgets and our calendars and our values and our priorities against the mission of God to make sure we are not losing our identity. Here, one place to check to keep track of how well we do with the mission is to pay attention who's engaging the mission among us. Who's pursuing the mission? The more a church becomes clergy-centered and allows or expects the pastors, the paid staff, to do the mission of the church, the less it's living into its identity as the people of God. The royal priesthood, the holy nation, the mission belongs to the entire church. We are all called to be part of it. But there is a tendency in our culture to depend upon the paid professionals to accomplish all that. Who's doing the mission? And the more God's people understand ourselves to be priests and ministers and missionaries to our world, the more that fire burns with mission in the church. We keep a close eye on a congregation's participation in the church's mission to have a clue as to whether or not our identity is remaining intact. When you see a church where most people share the load financially, where uh, people are good about stepping forward and saying, I know our church needs to be doing this and I have gifts and capabilities of helping accomplishment. I'll step in, I'll serve, I'll teach preschoolers, I'll teach children, I'll teach youth, I'll take an adult class, I'll do that part inside the church. And they're stepping forward to those ministries that are occurring outside the church as well. That's a sign of health. That's a sign that the mission is intact. And you see a financial burden Born by a relative few, you suspect a loss of identity on a part of that congregation. They may be in danger of seeing their giving simply as uh, an option, as, as uh, paying dues to an organization. But the generosity and sacrificial giving that comes to people that are dedicated to a common mission is an entirely different thing. Ministries spring up and flourish in a church that has kept its identity and people step forward to engage those. I want one way we keep track of the mission is paying attention to who's engaging it. How widespread is that in the church? We might also pay attention to where that mission is being pursued. It, the mission of God is a worldwide thing. It can't be contained in a building. Now, the work we do inside this building of teaching and discipling and praying and caring and all of those kind of things that happen inside the church building, that's part of the mission of God. But that's certainly not all of it. The mission of God is to a broken world, and it's outside of us, and it means that the church needs to be moving outside of the walls 
of the, of the church building. We can't engage the mission of God fully without being in the streets in some way or another, in the marketplace. We prepare God's people inside these church structures to do the work outside in the world. So if we want to detect any suspicious activity that may indicate that we're losing our identity, we might pay attention to where God's people are doing the mission. Does it happen both within and without, inside and outside, among believers and among the world? If that's so, our identity's probably still secure. And then we might ask the question of how the mission is being done. Pay attention to that. If all is well, then we know that our mission that we are engaging together is an expression of the heart of God to the world. And we are showing God's love and compassion to and in all the expressions of that mission, whether that's feeding hungry people or teaching Sunday school class. God's love and compassion to the heart of if, we're, if all is well, we are loving people we might ordinarily not have anything to do with. If all is well, we are moving occasionally outside our comfort zones and becoming well, uncomfortable. That's what happens. You give God the opportunity to grow our hearts to be more like his. We live with a kind of mission spirituality, if all is well, knowing that the actual engagement of God's mission actually transforms the church. When Peter, after God's Spirit's promptings and some dreams and heavy pushings, left Joppa and went to Caesarea to the home of a Gentile, uh, the centurion, um, who was converted there in the centurion's household? Well, Certainly, Cornelius the centurion in his household were, but I tell you what, Peter and a large number of the Jewish branch of the church were converted at that moment as well. The doing of the mission changes our hearts. It grows us into Christ's likeness. So a good indicator that all is well with our identity and mission is to see whether our hearts are enlarging, growing more like his, more unconditional love, more compassion, less fearful, less judgmental in the way that we look at human needs, especially among those who are different from us more we continue to reflect the values and the prejudices and the judgments of our culture, the more we might suspect something is amiss in our identity. We're the body of Christ. If we speak as Christ would speak and act as Christ would act, if we act in ways he would not act, if we speak in ways he would not speak, we may be struggling with our identity. This is what belonging to the church means more than anything else. We find out what our common mission is given to us by God, and we find ways of engaging it. Everybody can't engage it in the same way. Everyone can't engage it in the same way through every stage of life. But all of us who belong to the church engage it in one way or another, whether by activity and use of our gifts and abilities and our time, or whether by the use of our resources and our prayers, we engage the mission and it occupies us because that's why we exist. It is to be a part of the church. The surest way to defend our identity in a culture that would assimilate us is to engage the mission of God ourselves and encourage those around us to do so. There is no other entity in Western culture that does what the church has been charged to do. There are many, many agencies out there that do good in caring for human beings, and they should, and, and bless them for doing so. And there are many Christians involved in those agencies. 
but only the church has been called to do so as a clear and vibrant declaration of the love of God. We have been called to bear witness to him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is our mission. And when we forget that, lose that, or get assimilated into the culture, there's nobody in the culture that's doing it. It is the church's call. Protecting the church's identity is a full-time job for God's people these days. We have to deter those who would take away our biblical identity by keeping the mission of God clearly in focus. We have to detect suspicious activity by routinely monitoring the mission among us. Who's doing it? Where? How? And we have to defend our church's identity when we find it threatened by investing our lives and goods and time in something that's not that mission, asking simply, what's in it for me? It's not the mission of God. Are you engaging the church's mission in some particular way in your life? Where would God have you engage that mission of declaring his goodness, of being the people of God, of helping us be part of that gathering of people of every tribe and language and tongue and nation who love each other unselfishly and love God wholeheartedly? Hear Peter's words again. You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, that is our identity. Never let anyone steal it. After Moses reported back to the Lord what the people had said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments as an expression of that covenant. And Moses took those tablets and went back down to the people and read them to the people. And the people repeated three more times, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. We want to be the people of God. We want that to be our, our identity. We accept the terms of the covenant. And so Moses said, well, let's seal that. So Exodus tells in chapter 24 how he gathered the people together. They sacrificed an animal. They took blood from the sacrifice, and he sprinkled some of it on the people and some of it on those tablets. And he said when he did, listen to this. He said when he sprinkled it, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord your God is making with you this day. The slave people delivered from bondage entered into covenant with God to be God's people and attain their identity, and it was sealed with the blood of the covenant. I got to tell you, the story goes kind of downhill from there. Over the next six centuries, Israel failed to live up to its end of the bargain repeatedly, and it was only God's faithfulness that held them as his people. But finally, a time came when they were carried away into bondage in Babylon because they had lost their identity. They had compromised their identity. They had worshiped other gods, and off they were in captivity for 70 years. One of the prophets that was raised up during that time was Jeremiah. He spent a lot of his preaching telling them they were in big trouble and that they were about to be carried away in captivity. But once it happened, Jeremiah was given a word of hope to the people. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, Jeremiah says to the people, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God. 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, which they broke, says the Lord. But I will make a new covenant in that day and I will forgive their sins and I will remember their iniquities no more. And no longer will they have to teach one another and say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. A new covenant is coming. And then 600 years pass. And then in an upper room, Jesus gathers with his disciples that last Thursday night of his life to celebrate Passover, that festival that reminded them of the deliverance from Egypt. And during the course of the meal, Jesus took a glass of wine and he held it up and he said, behold, behold the blood of the new covenant, which the Lord your God is making with you. He reached back to Jeremiah's words, back to Moses' words and says, this is your identity. You are the delivered ones. You are the saved ones and the sent ones. And as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you identify with me and with God's people. You accept your identity as who you are. You are the saved ones and the sent ones. So this morning, you received a, uh, some elements as you came in. If you want to go ahead and take the top off of that even now and remove that bit of bread there, we will uh, eat this bread and drink this cup as Jesus commanded and instructed but as we do, what we are really, really doing is saying we accept our identity. The blood of the covenant, which was shed for us, we accept that. We want to be the people of God. So the gospel writers and Paul both give an account of how Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then after the bread, he took the cup and he gave it to them. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this cup, Paul said, you remember the Lord's death until he comes again. And so as we drink it, we affirm the covenant God has made with us, his church, his people, to be his people in the world. Holy Father, we are grateful for your love for us, for your deliverance through your son, Jesus, for the promise of eternal life and the gift of resurrection, the outpouring of your spirit, and then the call you placed in our life to be a part of your people and receive those gifts. Help us, God, as we live that out in our world. Bless this congregation, bless this church as we minister to one another and to those you bring across our paths in our daily lives. And to those we intentionally offer ourselves to in this community and in the world, we want to be your people, God. Help us to remember who we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.